It's Monday, which means it's time for Cross Defense. This is your favorite show, I'm sure. You've been dying all weekend, all week. You have to go a long time in between episodes. It's a once-a-week thing. How can this be? Uh, but we are finally back. Cross Defense. It's Monday, 2 p.m. Central Time, or whatever time you're listening to this particular episode with your favorite podcast app or over on KFUO.org with our on-demand listening. We want to thank you for tuning in. I am your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, admission counselor here at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's hashtag CTSFW, if you didn't know that. And uh, broadcasting worldwide from the campus here in Fort Wayne. It's starting to get a little chilly outside, kind of turning from fall to winter. We got uh, Christmas right around the corner. We are all enjoying our Advent tide and just, oh, it's so good to be here right now and to be with you. And this week, we have a return guest. We're still in the book of Jude. We're going to talk to the Reverend Willie Grills and let him continue to equip our minds because that's what we do on this show, right? We we equip the mind, we excite the imagination, and we comfort the soul all with God's word because, as you've heard me say so many times, we have a fierce foe out there, the devil, the devil. And we have one defense, Christ on the cross, the only defense we need, the defense, and what is it they say? I don't know. Willie, are you a sports guy? What do they say? A, a good offense is a is a good defense or something like that. I don't know. Something like that. It sounds right. Yeah, Put sounds... it in your book of maxims. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Offenses and defenses and football. That's all I know. But uh, we have the Lord and he is on our side and he is our, our defense. And so cross defense. Let's get into this first segment of the show and let the Reverend Willie Grills, who you may know from a word fitly spoken, or if uh, you happen to be one of his parishioners or something like that, uh, you know this man is fully equipped to guide us through and equip our minds in the book of Jude. So, Pastor, where did we leave off last week? Well, all right. So Jude is kind of an extended rebuke of these false teachers. Again, he is pointing out uh, their fruits, their behaviors. Uh, this is how you recognize them. Well, we left off um, sort of in the middle of the book uh, where Jude uses these biblical illusions, uh, or these biblical illustrations, rather, uh, to express just how dire the situation is for these for these false teachers. So he mentions Cain, Balaam, uh, Korah's rebellion, things like that. Of all their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, it's a very uh, telling here, um, because he uses the word ungodly or ungodliness uh, several times just in one verse. And it's not the kind of thing we're comfortable talking about all the time, right, Ty? Right, right. Um, you know, <laughs> what is ungodliness? Well, he's going to explain here. Uh, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following like, their own sinful desires. Sorry, I always they like are loud mal malcontents, right? What is, what malcontents, is malcontents, yeah. It's, it's so formal. Yeah, yeah, bad, uh, yeah, they are, um, it's it's malodorous content. They're, they're not happy with anything, right? They're always finding fault. They're always finding error. Um and it sounds weird. It's not like I'm saying we should always accentuate the positive, but they're always see, seeing uh, the negative in things yeah. because they're seeking to tear down rather than build up. Um, so following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
Now, this is something that is common with false teachers throughout time, right? Why would a false teacher, uh, someone who doesn't believe the doctrines of the church, why would they want to be a part of the church? Well, um, to gain something, um, perhaps material gain, perhaps an ego boost, something like that. But when we come into verse 17, this is where we really get into the into the meat of this here for Christians and what it means for us. Jude says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Now, scoffers, these these are people who scoff at the Word of God, particularly the moral law of God, and um, they bring divine punishment on themselves. We see this throughout Scripture. It's in the Psalms. It's in Proverbs. It's in Second Peter. And Paul even warns Timothy in his second epistle to Timothy that um, self-centeredness and self-indulgence, hypocrisy, this is all prophesied to take place in the last days. And so when you begin to see teachers who are only in it for themselves or who are puffing themselves up, and especially teachers who are scoffing at the Word of God, the clear Word of God. And, and here, in the context of Judah, it is particularly the moral law, frankly. That's what you have. Okay. They are following ungodly passions, as the text says. So, so it is a, is a moral thing, as well as a doctrinal thing, too, but it's most obviously manifest in their, in their lives, their, uh, their moral lives. If someone's listening right now and they're wondering what the distinction is that you just made, the moral thing versus doctrinal thing, could you break that down in, in real simple layman's terms? What's, what would be the difference there? Yes. So obviously it's a good, right, and moral thing to confess right doctrine. But we forget that right doctrine isn't everything. That doctrine uh, should uh, inform the heart, that should inform our lives, and it should affect our lives. And so the moral law, for example, God does expect us to live a certain way. Yes, we're supposed to confess the creed, but that confession is a manifestation of our true faith, and that true faith is evidenced um, in our lives. And so, so the moral law is basically what God would have us do, and doctrine is what we confess about what the Scriptures teach. Perfect. And yeah. some people want to put a wedge between the two, right? Yeah. So. Right. But there can't be a wedge. Yeah, you have to have both. Good doctrine doesn't do you anything if you don't have true faith. It doesn't profit you anything. And and certainly false doctrine plus uh, external good works don't profit anything either, to be clear. But we can't just say, well, this guy over here has great theology. I mean, he's a mass murderer, but his theology was spot on. You know? <laughs> Just doesn't yeah. work that way. It doesn't work like that. That's I right. mean, some people might disagree. Some people might disagree, but we could debate that. Uh, <laughs> so, so these people are devoid of the Spirit, worldly people, and causing division. So they seek to divide the people of Christ. But you, beloved, verse twenty, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, building, uh, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures tell us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so in order to be built up, we need to go where there is wisdom. We need to go um, 
to worship. We need to go to the divine service. We need to hear the word preached. We need to receive the sacraments. Um, but that needs to also go into the home as well. Would you agree? Yeah, right. That this, yeah. So this equipping takes place daily. And Ty, I think we've, you know, sometimes overemphasized one aspect of our life together in the church, and it's true that the um, that the church is a hospital for sinners, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. And what does the hospital do? It it heals. It binds up. And the idea, though, is that it heals you so that you don't have to be in the hospital. Of course, we're always going to have to be going back there. Right, right. But right. We, are, we, are, we are built up in a, in a hospital, so to speak. So we're built up in the church. So the church is a hospital. Your, 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 your wounds are healed. You're bound up. You're, you're picked up. You, you, you're given strength. And also the church is like a gymnasium whereby we are equipped and strengthened for the journey. So we need to be in this active uh, life within the church. And it is active participation. So you are hearing the word. You are receiving Christ's body and blood, but you are also responding back in thanksgiving. You're doing the normal responsories uh, within the service. I, uh, for to, to, neglect, um, to neglect to attend church or to... Uh, to sort of nod off during church or something like that, um, to neglect these things is detrimental to us, and it clouds the mind. Amen. I want to ask you about this idea between the hospital and the gymnasium. As you were talking about that, it made me think of this idea of you, know, you go to the gym, or let's, let's go this way, actually. I can go two different ways with this. Let's go to the hospital. You go to the hospital when you're sick, when you're hurt, when you need healed. Uh, the, the doctors patch you up, and they send you home. That's kind of what we think of a hospital. But that's not the most accurate understanding of a hospital, and especially not for the sinner who is constantly sick, chronically sick, um, dealing with an ongoing ailment. So maybe, like, tell me if this works. You go to the hospital because you have a knee replacement. You know, your first knee is bum. You got to get it fixed. So you go in, the doctors and the nurses, they, they do their thing. They, they patch you up. They give you a new knee, and they put you in one of those little, you know, laying on the bed, and they give you one of those machines that kind of like, pulls your leg out and bends it for you because at that moment, right after surgery, you can't do it, right? So it's doing it for you. And then eventually they say, okay, now, uh, Pastor Grills, you, you got to go home. Um, and we're not, we're not going to send this machine home with you. You got to make sure five times a week you do this movement with your knee. If you don't, you're going to have consequences that are going to be worse than when you first started. It's actually going to go backwards. So there's yeah. this daily living out of the procedure or that you're taking care of things daily that the doctors prescribe to you, let's call it weekly. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, 100%. And that's, that's kind of the point here that it is preparing you. It is healing you and preparing you for the week to come. It's preparing you for the world to come. Yeah, right, right. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm and, tracking and, with you, so that, that's good. Yeah, okay. and, and so that's absolutely what's going on here. It is it is strength for the journey. It is, yeah, it's it's kind of a spiritual, spiritual physical therapy, if you want to look at it that way. Which is how and most it, all medicine works, right? And that was the one example, but doctors hardly ever just send you home without, you know, a follow-up, a checkup, without something you have to do at home, yeah, right? Right, and see... <laughs> 
and and then, and so it builds well uh, this analogy on this building up language. Sure. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so, how do we build ourselves up? How do we keep ourselves well? We are diligent in attending the divine service, but we're also diligent in our homes. We're praying in the morning. We're making the sign of the cross. We're praying at meals. We're reading the scriptures together uh, as a family if we have them, or also alone. There are plenty of times uh, throughout the day we can read scripture, we can pray, we can read good books, read books that are worthwhile. Um, you know, to continue the health analogy, if you just eat junk food, your body's going to have a bad time, right? Well, if right. you continue to take things in um, into your eyes or into your mouth or, or you know, into your brain that's, um, that's bad for you, it's going to have an effect. And so you seek that nourishment uh, throughout the week. Right. And that's how we build ourselves up. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't say this, and I kind of began to make the point earlier that we, we are going to see, um, unless we pray to the Lord for mercy, um, a, a terrible fallout, I think, from some of these lockdowns and things like that, because people have been kept away from things necessary for so long. And when, I, when we say the church is essential, we don't, mean like, we don't mean it, well, it's essential or you can't touch it because of the First Amendment. We mean it's essential because we need it. We need it because we need the forgiveness of sins. We need Amen. the medicine that only the church can provide. And so when a Christian is kept away from that, the, the Christian uh, withers away. It's and essential so now, like air. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and we don't mean this poetically or something like that. We mean this as literally as can be. We need this because it will lead to a greater death if we neglect these things. Yeah. You know, I heard uh, someone saying this week, they were kind of positing this little uh, scenario that someone says, I, I need to go to church. And a, a, a well-meaning Christian says something in reply, well, your, your faith must be pretty weak if you can't make it one week without church. I mean, come on, ease up on the whole quarantine lockdown stuff. We can all go through this. For, I mean, I are we really going to suffer if we're if we can't go to church for a year? I mean, come on, we all want to be in church, but we understand we can't be there. And the person's reply was, no, my faith is really that weak. I can't make it a, a single week. Like, I, I, I can't. I need it. Yeah. Um, and you could also make the argument that my faith is that strong or that my, or that my, <laughs> my, catech my catechesis was good enough that I know what I need and what I don't, right? Right, which, yeah, which is a whole different angle of that same topic. Right. But, but right. yeah, I mean, the, the opponent um, in, the, in, in your example here, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost a haughty way to go about this. I'm not saying they're quite like the people in Jude, but it is boasting of their own faith, right? I mean, imagine having a faith so great you didn't need Christ. <laughs> right? Ah, and, the audacity. And, and, oh. <laughs> and, and we do believe, and that's the thing, our religion, the Lutheran faith is, is tangible, right? There are things that we can taste and feel that we deem essential. Yep. Excuse me, that God deems essential. Right. Thank you. Right. And and. and and spiritual communion uh, pales in comparison to actual communion. Amen. And if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the sacrament of the altar, I wouldn't even be uh, wouldn't even be talking to you about this today. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so we're we're down to about a minute and a half. Let's get through right. the end of the the book and and leave us with something memorable. Because, um, like I said in the beginning of the, the little intro here, we got to go a whole week before we get to come back to cross defense. I don't want people to forget. Right. 
<laughs> right. Okay. Okay. A minute. I can do this, but I'm going to get through all the text. So hold on. Okay. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. It's going to end with a long doxology. I'm going to trust you, the listener, to go and read verses 24 and 25, because I know you can do it. So verse 23, save, uh, uh, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on those who doubt. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. This is uh, more proof that we need to be together, that we need to be building one another up and correcting one another and showing mercy to one another. And, and it's tough love sometimes, and it's gentle love other times, but this happens in community, in communion with our brethren in Christ. And so we are living in the last days, as Jude says. We are living in strange times, but we don't live alone. Wherever we gather, there is Christ. The whole Trinity is present. But also, where Christians are gathered, we are building up one another, holding one another up in the faith, building each other up, showing mercy showing Christ, being Christ to each other. And in this way, we're better equipped for the dark days ahead, and in this way we'll withstand the last judgment, and in this way we'll escape the devil and false teachers and whatever else the world can throw at us. Mm, such good stuff. Thank you, Pastor, for uh, spending some time with us this uh, fine Monday and uh, equipping our minds with the book of Jude. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Glad to be here. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You're listening to Cross Defense. Don't go away. When we get back, we will excite the imagination and then comfort the soul. Twenty twenty has already been a year of chaos. Now add in the end of the year chaos, duties, deadlines, regrets plus the pre-Christmas chaos of ads, peer pressure, shopping, family gatherings, empty seats at the table. Who can bring calm to this chaos? Well, the true calm isn't that we'd all just get through it or even get along. The true calm is the peace of Jesus Christ, the peace that comes from his promises, the peace that comes from his forgiving blood, the peace that comes from a confident hope in the resurrection to eternal life for all who trust in him. Don't ride the wave of chaos to get to Christmas and the end of the year. Join the Christian church for Advent and find the calming peace of Christ in your church and home. For Advent, Family, Table Grace, and many other resources, check out lcms.org advent. That's lcms.org advent. And find the peace that this world cannot give. All right, we're back for our second segment of today's show. Thanks for sticking around and not going too far during that break. There's always good information to be had during the break. You want to pay attention. Don't, don't tune out just because we go to a break. In fact, pay attention because the break is going to tell you what else is going on here at KFUO.org, but it's also going to tell you what's going on in other parts of the Missouri Senate as well. Different projects and things and groups and all that kind of stuff. So just tune your ears to the break. And then... Get ready to come right back to what we're doing, which is, for now, exciting the imagination. We are here in segment number two, which means we are going to talk to our Imagineer, the Reverend Sam Schulteis from Beautiful Savior Lutheran Church in Milton, Washington. Sam, how are you again? Ah, doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Uh, so glad Super. to be here and to have you uh, on the show. What are we going to talk about today in regards to exciting the imagination? 
Yeah, so uh, I, I think I think today we'll do a little uh, we'll do a little Advent fruitcake mix of things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Advent fruitcake. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I personally am not a fan of fruitcake, but I know some people are. Um, I so what we'll do today. Uh, look a little I, bit of. Uh, you're a fruitcake fan. Well, I, yeah, you know, I always yeah. heard how bad fruitcake was. You always hear the jokes. You know, the regifting <laughs> right. of fruitcake. So I never really tried it. And then when we were in Ferndale. First Christmas we were there, the the mercantile, our little local, you know, mm. mercant, they sold a, a traditional classic fruitcake. And oh. what's the problem? What's wrong with y'all? Fruitcake <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> I think it's bad experiences, at least personally for me. I although I, I I must admit there was somebody I don't know if it was the church we served at California back in Huntington Beach or somebody 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 made like these little fruitcake cookies. Okay. They were really good. So that so I've had a good experience with that. The other like the traditional fruitcake thing, I haven't had any good uh, you know positive <laughs> moments of that. But your but. point of reference today is not that we're going to talk about bad things, but that we're going to talk about a mixture of stuff or or what? What is exactly. your point of reference? Yeah. Why are we talking exactly. about fruitcake? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, you know, like fr fruitcake throws a lot of things together. So I'm okay, gonna, there we go. Put three things together for our imagination today. Okay. And uh, you know, last time we talked about the Psalms, and that naturally led my brain to thinking, well, what comes after the Psalms in the Scriptures? The prophets do. I mean, there's ah. wisdom literature too, and maybe that's another segment to explore at some point, uh, maybe next time or when we sure. feel like getting getting into that. Um, but you know, the prophets and the imagination, and because we're in the season of Advent, let's throw that in together too, because a lot of the prophetic things that we get to hear this time of the year, you know, especially with Oh, like a prophet Isaiah, and we hear promises from Jeremiah, and you know Mal Micah and Malachi, and you know there's there are prophecies and there are foretellings and foreshadowings and types and fulfillments all over the place in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And Advent, we tend to hear a lot of those. Um, I know that we have been in our Advent midweek services here, uh, looking at Jesus' family tree and looking at you know Genesis and oh let's see we looked at uh, Genesis uh, two uh, two or three uh, two weeks ago or so. At any rate, uh, you know kind of looking at Jesus' family tree there. So any rate, that's that that was that's the that's the fruitcake reference there. <laughs> We're gonna throw it all together and. I, I promise you this will this will taste good. This will awesome. be good. Uh, well, good. I love it. <laughs> Whether you like fruitcake or not. This is gonna taste good. Oh. That's right. That's right. I mean, so a few things just kind of in general that come to mind, looking at uh, the prophets, looking at the imagination. Um, much like we talked about with the Psalms, a lot of those things apply and are and are true too. And the prophets tend to tend to speak, tend to declare, right? Tend to be called by God to do certain things. And oftentimes it fits into two classic categories. Uh, you know, it's it's a warning or a promise. So their use of the imagination in their description or their words of warning to the people of Israel, right, or to whoever they're talking to, they're going to use imagination. You know, some of the uh, some of the language about you know the, the coming judgment on you know, on Israel in the times of you know before the Babylonian uh, captivity and things like that. Just the, the rich language that's there, destructive language, but rich, right? And the, then on the other side of that is the promise. Right. And then you get judgment and you get consolation. Right? Uh, Isaiah is full of that. But you get then this beautiful, you know, Isaiah chapter 40, right? Starts with comfort, comfort you, my people. Mm. And uh, we talk about this in terms of law and gospel. So, you know, the imagination is at work in the prophets as they are being God's instruments, his voice, right? His mouth house, I think Luther called the church, but that kind of fits with the prophets too. It's a good image to have in your head that you know, that's what the prophets are called to do. Hear God's word and then speak it. But oftentimes when they do speak it and preach it and declare it, 
they're doing it in very imaginative, uh, very picturesque, right? Very illustrative language, uh, you know, imaginative kinds of ways. So that's one way, um, you know, just in the words that they use, right? It's kind of that sort of that next part of it in all the words, whether they're describing Israel or whether they're describing God himself, uh, the words that they use are full of imagination. And, you know, then our, as we hear and read, we're also using our imagination to help unpack those. You know, a common image, for example, of Jesus in, well, in the prophet Isaiah, we just heard this oh, last night uh, in one of our Advent hymns, that uh, Jesus is right, the root of Jesse, or, uh, you know, oh, come thou tree, uh, branch of Jesse's tree, right? You know, come, O come, Emmanuel. Well, that's not only a wonderful prophecy and uh, is fulfilled in Christ, but it also is a very imaginative description of, of who Jesus is, you know, his, his calling, his life, his work, those kinds of things, right? So uh, that's, that's, that's kind of another part too, right? Um, the, the way that God speaks about anything through the prophets is going to come in terms of imaginative language, especially the way that they write, right? Oftentimes it's not the historical narrative, which has its own unique use of imagination that we saw in some of the earlier segments that we looked at. And just like we did with the Psalms too, but in the you know in the prophets you've got you've got pro poetry, you've got some narration, you've got a little bit of everything, and yeah. you know, we use our imagination when we read and hear that, just as God uses the imagination of the prophets uh, to convey His message, right? To proclaim it. Uh, what is there a danger for people who are not familiar with certain things? You know, I often wonder in our modern era. You know, I'm from Wyoming and I know about sheep herders because in our area of Wyoming, we have, you know, we have shepherds and we have sheep. But, right. you know, as you, as you mentioned, like Jesse's tree, it, just these points of reference. It, is there a danger that we can run into of just not knowing what Scripture is saying when, they're, when the prophets are using language that just doesn't resonate with 2020? Right. In, in, yeah, I mean, in I New think, York City, I mean, do, do they know what sure. a shepherd is? Right, right. I, I mean, we encountered when I lived in California. We were at Huntington Beach, so you know, Southern California, Orange County, and yeah, you don't have you don't have things like that around there. You know, no, no shepherds around. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think the danger is, is there's a couple of things to to watch out for. One is uh, to gloss over, right? To gloss over those important images, and we don't want to do that. Which is why you know, radio segments like this, or Bible studies at your local church with your pastor, or your own devotional, uh, you know, life and study and reading of the scriptures and helpful resources are a good thing, right? Because those are going to help unpack those, you know, so glossing over is one danger. The other thing is to just completely change them all together, right? And some, you know, some biblical translations will go that route too. And they'll try to make a metaphor or a simile or some kind of symbolism or something that's in the scriptures. And they'll try to like retranslate it uh, mm -hmm. for, you know, modern times or update it and things like that. And while I understand the motivation for that, and you can, you can, you can understand and appreciate, okay, they're trying to make it under understandable for people. But at the same time, when we lose the language of the scriptures and all of the imaginative, uh, you know, goodness that is there, all the, all the good imaginative things that God is giving us in his word with the images he has chosen to use to reveal himself, if we take that away and lose it, uh, sometimes we end up losing certain things about the gospel itself, right? For example, like, you know, we, obviously we're not shepherds, right? But if we lose, you know, imagine if we didn't have Psalm 23, Right. Right. Imagine if we didn't have John one twenty nine, where Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I don't. I mean, I've never had any lambs in my experience, other than what I see at the state fair. But 
you know, the more we read and grow and learn in scriptures, there's a corrective to that, right? So, you know, we don't want to gloss over these images and these these ways that God speaks to us, but we also don't want to erase them uh, either and completely change them. And you know, I think that can be harmful too. So, so there's something to be yeah, said I, then that the that this language that the prophets use and the other uh, the apostles and things that they're actually helping keep our imagination alive, even though absolutely. times are changing. Mm -hmm. We're still able to imagine yeah. what that would look like, what that would be like. Yep. Oh, I think so. And, and one of this, one of the, one of the great things I was looking at some of the prophets, just scrolling through a few famous verses that I was thinking of in, related to Advent that we'll look at here momentarily. But um, as I was looking through that, I, I noticed this this kind of paradox, and it came out actually through the New Testament. I was looking at uh, was it First Corinthians two, where you know Paul is talking about God and how no eye has seen, no ear has heard, right? And he actually uses. I have to do some digging on the Greek word he uses there, but he says, no one has imagined in their hearts God himself. Right? And I thought, hmm. And he was quoting Isaiah 64, and you go back to Isaiah 64, and you look at a little bit of the context, and you know it's talking about how, how you cannot imagine the goodness of God, right? So this is Isaiah 64, verse 4 that, that Paul is quoting there. He says, from, uh, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those you who remember in you in your ways. Uh, behold, you are angry and we sin, but in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? And the answer, of course, from you know, going on into the rest of Isaiah and other parts is that, yes, uh, we will be saved, uh, even in our sin, because right. Christ comes to take us and take our sin from us. And so you know, we have this, I think it's a beautiful paradox that, that exists in the prophets, but throughout the rest of the scriptures, that God reveals himself as one who is, on the one hand, completely unimaginable to us, right? He's beyond our imaginations. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we can't quite, we, we cannot fathom him, right? I mean, the doctrine of the Trinity, right? The teaching from the scriptures that God is one and three and three and one and the mystery that is there, the joy that is there, the confession that is there. Uh, but at the same time, we can confess those things, but we can only go so far right, as scripture says. And then we, there's a certain point where our brains just, you know, we, it turns to mush and you know, that that's way above our <laughs> mental pay grade. <laughs> right? um, so you have that part of the part of reality from the scriptures. But then on the other hand, we have the Lord who uses the imagination of people like his prophets and apostles and servants throughout the scriptures. We also have then our own gifts of the imagination that he gives us. And even God himself, right, even though he is unimaginable and is beyond our imagination, he makes himself man and becomes an image, a, a man, part of his own creation, right? The creator becomes part of the creation, right? The, the playwright writes himself into the play, right? The director shows up in his own movie, like a, like a Stan Lee, uh, you know, cameo or something like that. <laughs> Only better, of course, right? right so right. It, it, it's, a, it's a really beautiful, and the, the prophets really make this, this come alive with the language they use, right? Um, in particular, in some of these, uh, in some of these promises and uh, covenants that God works through his people there. And um, just, just the way he, he conveys and speaks his love to his people. So, Wonderful. yeah, I think that's, it's good to be, it's good to be, um, it's good to be aware of the imagination in using these things. Cause you know, we, we, you know, how, how, how boring would Christmas be if we didn't have the book of Isaiah right? <laughs> and all of the promises and, uh, you know, rich prophecies and joyful words of comfort. Um, you know, like for example, here's, I, I jotted down a couple of, uh, a couple old Testament verses that I think, really highlight a couple of things, both the, the prophetic work that God called his prophets to do, uh, also 
the gift of the imagination that they employ and okay. use both in speaking and declaring and then in us hearing and receiving. Okay. And then also, of course, the season of Advent. So, again, uh, it's sort of like a sort of like a fruitcake, except it'll, it'll, it'll taste good. <laughs> or, sorry, no, and no offense to fruitcake lovers, really. <laughs> I, if you want to, like, like Pastor Schulteis is flipping his Bible. If you want to DM me about your love or hate of fruitcake, let's get a survey going. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you know, somebody, somebody, like, put a recipe on there for. Okay, this is my grandma's recipe, and it's amazing, and you got to try it. There we right? go. That's that's useful help, right Help now. out the skeptics, right? <laughs> that's the best use of radio I've ever heard right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. So Isaiah 714, right? very popular, very well-known um, prophecy of Christ, right? The, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Right? And sometimes you know, when, when I mentioned that our Lord is beyond our imagination, sometimes it happens where he does things that are unexpected to our imaginations too, right? Um, this is kind of a... Uh, kind of like a, like a theology of the cross, uh, I guess you could say, in uh, you know, in in the imagination, right? God God hides Himself in unexpected, strange, lowly, humble, hidden ways, um, and you know, a, a virgin conceiving and bearing a son is not exactly the way that a lot of people conceived or imagined, right? The the Messiah to come about or or the Savior to be born, and yet this is exactly what God does right it's exactly how he works <laughs> that's right and um and time and time again right throughout throughout the entire old testament you know, abraham and sarah right they're they're old <laughs> really old <laughs> and that's not a bad thing it's just that they're past they're past childbearing years and there's no way they know humanly speaking anyway that they're going to have a child and yet right god promises a chosen son through them, Isaac, who one day would be, right, uh, through his line, through his generation, down through the generations, would would be, uh, you know, the, the great, 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 on and on and on grandfather, right, of Jesus, right, just like David, right, uh, David's son and David's Lord, right. Um, so Scripture does this over and over and over again, uh, and I think that's it's a beautiful thing, right, because that's that's what Luther calls the theology of the cross, right, that. Uh, God works in the hidden, lowly, humble things. And you hear that again in the language of the prophets. And, uh, you know, even the uh, like the famous Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, right, comes out of Micah 5, 2, where uh, Bethlehem is this little town. It's too small to be among the clans of Judah. It's, it's, it's kind of this backwater place it's described. And yet, right, from you is going to come one who is ruler of all. I mean, that's that defies our imagination too. And yet, right, and yet God puts his own image there, right? The image and icon, the exact imprint, right? Hebrews 1 uh, says um, about Jesus himself. Uh, he puts the fullness of the deity, deity that dwells bodily in Jesus in a manger. I mean, that's something that we could never have imagined. You know, yeah. The God of the universe dwelling in a feeding trough. <laughs> that's, yeah. If I was writing the story, right, if we were imagining it, I think we would have probably done that a little differently. Maybe, a, I don't know, maybe a big Steven Spielberg production or, you know, something with lights and flashy fireworks and, you know, I don't know, Arnold coming in with, uh, you know, guns blazing or something, <laughs> whatever it may be. It's, it, I think it would look far different. Right? And yet this is how our, this is how our God, I think, unveils his imagination for us in, in completely unexpected ways for us. But that's a good thing, right? Because the other kind of the other flip side of that is that why does he do it that way, right? Why does he work in these lowly, humble ways like a uh, like an Isaiah 714 promise or even back in Genesis kind of promise, right? Or the Micah 5-2 promise or all these promises 
you know, done through sinful, twisted people and uh, yet given in great mercy. Well, because he wants us to know, right, uh, that he wants us to imagine, I guess we could say, uh, and see him and believe in him as he would have us, uh, you know, to believe and see and imagine him and his work rightly so that, you know, we see that everything depends on him, not on our own imagination, right? Because we, we saw that last time in the Psalms where the, you know, uh, the Psalms uh, and the scriptures bring out this idea that we are, we are saint and sinner. And yet at the same time, um, God uses that, right? Our imagination is saint and sinner. And so, so too, so too here, right? In the prophets, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. One, one kind of quick, uh, as we're closing, wrapping up here, um, we hear a similar promise there in Isaiah 9, right? People walking in darkness, right, have seen a great light, right? On them who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them is light shined. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I mean, you wouldn't, I don't know, I don't think of a child walking into a room and suddenly just kind of flicking on the lights and throwing open the party and, you know, kicking in some, some bad guy uh, rear end, right? Breaking things on <laughs> as on the day of Midian. Well, maybe little kids do that. Correction, <laughs> slight correction there, right? But, you know, again, these things are unexpected. And yet the prophet Isaiah, among many others, right? all the prophets do this, but richly imaginative. I mean, Hosea, who would have thought that, that God would have a prophet marry a, a, a lady of the night, <laughs> right? <laughs> and say, hey, this is an, this is an image and this is a this is a revealing of my gracious love for my faithless bride of Israel, and it, it's a wonderful a wonderful a wonderful picture of God's love for us as the church, right? The ones who have been bought by the blood of Christ, our bridegroom, and uh, you know presented to the Father as redeemed and holy and spotless and pure without any blemish. Um, and in, the prophets just are, I mean, it's one page after another full of this rich language, um, and ultimately all of it right points to Christ, which is probably the greatest thing about the prophets. And the imagination of all is that, like the Psalms and like everything else, uh, all of it points to Jesus and his great love and grace uh, for us. Ah, what a great way to end with that bite from the fruitcake. We'll be right back for our third segment. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. And we're back for our third and final segment of today's show. You're listening to Cross the Fence. Thanks for sticking with us. This is the segment of the show where we strive to comfort the soul with God's word. In the first segment, we equip the mind. In the second, we excite the imagination. And now it's time for some comfort. And oh, how we need it. Now, last week, I mentioned this uh, this idea of living the Christian life. Uh, and I used this theme of making people use dirty words, right? Making the world, unbelievers, refer to you as a Christian, refer to you as a Lutheran, refer to you as baptized, talk about the Bible that you read, talk about the fact that you're justified, redeemed, sanctified, all these sorts of Christian words that the world doesn't like to use. Because see, when the world uses these words, they have to face the fact that they exist, that Jesus exists, that the cross is a reality, that their sins are a reality. 
See, that's the, that's the reason the world hates Jesus, if you, didn't, if you didn't know. Because to face the fact that Jesus is a real man who really lived and really went to the cross to really die for you, you must recognize that you're a sinner. But there is a reason for his works. There is a reason he lived perfectly under the law, even unto death. Because you are a miserable sinner. You do nothing good on your own. And the world hates that. Unbelievers hate that. Want to pretend it doesn't exist. And so uh, that was kind of the idea last week of using dirty words, making the world use dirty words. And of course, they're not dirty, but this world is turned upside down, topsy-turvy, and everything is backwards. So uh, evil is called good and good is called evil. And so good words, Christian words are called dirty. Well, today in this segment, it's kind of a continuation. I want to read to you and longtime cross defense listeners will be very familiar with this resource. I want to read to you from uh, Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, volume three. No, 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 no. this isn't going to be boring, right? And that's, that's the, the whole intent and origin of this show is, is to show just how exciting reading the Bible is just to show how much the imagination will be piqued when you open up the book to show how you can equip your mind with this good content and that your souls are comforted when doing so. And this, this chapter is great. This chapter is called The Christian Life and the Cross. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's, it's just focusing on what the Christian life looks like in view of the cross that we are called to bear. And he breaks it down into six different points, six different sort of uh, subsections that you can think about the Christian life and the cross. And today I want to focus on the third one that is listed here, the right view of the cross, because this is going to help you make the world use those dirty words. It's going to help you live a life that will make the world recognize who you are. Not because you're striving to be seen as holier than thou or, or righteous or pious and all this kind of thing. Because really, you know, I know, every Christian knows that we're the same as everyone else. The only difference is we believe in Jesus. The only difference is we're not rejecting the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're not rejecting our forgiveness. The gift is not being kicked back into the gift giver's face. We are saying thank you instead of pretending like it's not there. Beyond that, we're still dirty, rotten sinners. Every single day, I sin horribly, egregiously. I am a complete train wreck of a sinner. Perfect? Perfect? Perfection? No, uh-uh. Can't even come close on my own. I strive to do what is good and right, as you do, but I'm a sinner. And so there's this right view of the cross. And I, I live in a sinful world as well as do you. So let's take a look here and see how we can uh, live our Christian life under the cross, bearing the cross, how we can make the world use those dirty words. And uh, let's see how it's laid out here in this section. It's really good. So number three, and uh, of the five or six of the six, number three, the right view of the cross. The flesh of Christians considers cross-bearing a heavy burden. Do you hear that? The flesh of Christians considers cross-bearing a heavy burden. But by their flesh, they are led to think 
that when the world mistreats them, they are not receiving what they ought as children of God and members of Christ's body. I hope you're paying attention to this. By our flesh, our old Adam within us, our, our sinfulness, we're led to think that when the world mistreats me, a Christian, that somehow I'm not receiving what I should receive as a child of God. Like, I, I'm a child of God, man. Why am I being mistreated? Why is the world sustaining me like this? Why is the world beating me up like this? Doesn't God know that I'm his child? They may even think at times that God has forgotten them and become cruel to them. And he cites Lamentations 5.20, Psalm 13.1, and Job 30.21. Let's take a real quick tour of the Bible and see what those verses say just so we can see that even, even in Scripture, this thought has occurred. Lamentations 5.20. Let me get there. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? But it's interesting to note, 21 and 22, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. In Psalm 13, 1, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And continuing, actually, how, how long must I take counsel in my soul, my own soul, and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, and so on and so on. And Job 28, what was it? 28, no, excuse me, 30. Job 30, 21. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Ooh, and he goes on and on, as Job does. They may even think at times that God has forgotten them and become cruel to them. We continue, and unless these thoughts are checked, these tempted Christians will lose their faith, which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. He's quoting Luke 8.13. Scripture therefore instructs us, first of all, that the cross, even though by it our sins are judged, does not, listen to this, does not manifest God's wrath against us, but rather reveals God's love toward us. The cross, when we endure hardship, when we suffer under the cross, Scripture says that that's not God manifesting His wrath toward you. That's God revealing His love for you. It marks you as a child of God. Scripture assures us that whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. <laughs> Hebrew, Hebrews 12, 6-10. It's fun to read. The ifs, isn't it? And that when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned by the world. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. 
Scripture further instructs us that when we suffer because of our confession of Christ by word and deed, the cross is for us a testimony of the Holy Spirit. Again, let me read that again. Just emphasize these points, my friends. Emphasize that the cross, that you're suffering, the thing that you're enduring because you're a Christian, that is actually God revealing his love for you. And scripture further instructs us that when we suffer because of our confession of Christ, the cross then is for us a testimony of the Holy Spirit. That we are not of the world, but belong to Christ. For we then experience the same treatment which Christ and all witnesses of Christ experienced. When you're suffering because you're a Christian, when you're bearing your cross, you're bearing something similar to what Jesus went through, His cross. And that is not a figurative cross, my friends. Jesus literally was nailed to a chunk of wood and suspended in the air. He literally suffered that kind of death. And when you bear your cross, and now your cross may take on different forms. Your cross may be outright persecution. It may be slandering of your reputation. It may be you know, missing out on opportunities because you're a Christian and the unbelieving world around you tries to avoid that and, and it even in, you know, judges you wrongly and, and makes life hard for you. It may not be a physical nailing to a chunk of wood. But when you suffer, you are suffering like your Lord did and like the apostles and the witnesses, the martyrs. If you, be a if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are we, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. 1 Peter 4.14 If you suffer, rejoice! For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Matthew 5.12 Scripture explicitly informs us that the sufferings of this time by which we become like Christ are for us a pledge of the eternal glory awaiting us, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Romans 8.17, 2 Thessalonians 1.5-7, and 2 Corinthians 4.7-8. It is entirely scriptural to call the cross the livery of Christians, the uniform, the clothing of of Christians. They wear the colors of the king. Your colors, my friends, your colors are are the cross. They are crimson, they are blood stained. They are they are burdens. They are persecutions. They are hatred by this world. They should therefore rejoice when instead of being praised and honored by the world, Christians reap abuse and blows. Matthew 5:12, Luke 6:23. The apostles took this view of the cross when they were flogged by the council, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, Acts 5.41. When Paul and Silas at Philippi lay in the inner prison, their feet fast in the stocks, they prayed and sang praises unto God, Acts 16.25. And when 
A Christian is harassed by the thought that God might have miscalculated the weight of the cross and laid more on him than he can bear. Scripture assures him that the same gracious God who imposes the temptation will provide for its happy termination. Catch that? The same God who imposes the temptation will provide for its happy termination. It is God who is giving you your cross. It is God who is showing you he loves you by giving you this cross. Luther is cited here by, by Peeper. Luther calls the cross the marks of Christ, which are not painted on the wall, but are branded in the flesh and blood of the Christian. If you refuse to suffer with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not desire to become like him, he will on the last day certainly not acknowledge you as a brother and fellow heir, but will ask you where your crown of thorns, your cross, nails, and scourge are. Where's your cross, my friends? I don't know how you picture seeing the Lord when you die. There's all kinds of fanciful ways of thinking about it, the pearly gates and all these sorts of metaphors and images and things that people have come up with in history to try to get us to think about that. How about this one that Luther gives us? When you meet the Lord, will he look in your hands and on your head? Will he say, where's your crown? Will you say, well, I've been waiting to receive it from you, Lord. You didn't give it to me. All you gave me was suffering. All you gave me was pain. He said, yes, yes, I, I know. Because I too wore a crown of thorns. Where's yours? Where are the nail marks in your hands? Where's the scourge? Where's your uniform, Christian? Interesting, isn't it? After this manner, Paul said to the Galatians, Chapter 6, verse 17, From henceforth let no man trouble me and say anything about teaching that which gains friendship here on earth, for I bear in my body the marks of my Lord Jesus Christ. He is here speaking of such marks as are found in ancient paintings of Christ, where the Savior is represented as bearing his cross upon his shoulders with the nails, the crown of thorns, and the scourge. These marks, Paul says, I and all Christians must exhibit, not painted on the wall, but branded in our flesh and blood. They are made when the devil inwardly plagues you with terrors and griefs. And the world outwardly slanders you as a heretic. And whenever possible, takes you by the throat and puts you to death. St. Paul here tells every Christian that he must show the scars of the Lord Jesus Christ. How about that? How about that? For comfort. You say... Pastor Bramwell, for comfort. What are you talking about, Ty? That's not comforting. Saying I have to bear the cross. That doesn't sound very comfortable at all. That sounds painful. That sounds agonizing. That sounds extremely uncomfortable. The comfort is that that's, that's what the Lord has given you to show you He loves you. Like a child. When a dad disciplines a child, it's not because he hates the child. It's because he loves the child. And he wants the child to grow and mature and do what is good, right, and salutary, right? He wants the child to live a life that is proper 
And so when that child steps out of line and steals the, the piece of candy from the grocery store, he may receive a spanking, a grounding, the uncomfort of having to bring the candy back and apologize and, and even pay retribution, do his time, so to speak. And the dad does that because he loves the child. He disciplines the child. He imposes a cross upon the child so that the child will learn and later on in life not end up in jail for larceny. Something like that, right? That, that's, that's the dad showing love. Your father loves you. And so he gives you a cross. As you suffer, as you're, as you're going through trials and tribulations and persecutions, as the world hates you, find comfort in the fact that this is the Lord showing you His love. God has ordained for you whatever you're going through because He loves you, Christian. You live in a, a sinful world. Bad things are going to happen. But for the Christian, the diseases we suffer, all the calamities, the, the famines, the, the, the going without, and the overt hatred toward us, it's all built into the cross that we bear so that we would know our Lord loves us. So we would rejoice and sing praises. Thank you. Thank you, God, for giving me just a bit, just a little tiny insignificant amount of suffering that I would always remember the glory that awaits, that I would remember Christ on his cross, and that I have been bound together with him, baptized into him. I wear him and his suffering on as my uniform, which I received in baptism. Thank you, Lord. It is such a good comfort to know you love me. With that, my friends, the show is over. I will see you next Monday. Christ be with you. Talk to you later. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at kfuo.org.